You have joined us for Making a Mark, Making Places. I'm Louise Puck. And I'm Anna Danielson. Our guests today are telling stories of their work as immigrant artists in America. The podcast is produced by the Institute for Immigration Research at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, with support from Radio WGMU. The Institute was established in 2012 to provide the public with objective, nonpartisan, original research about the positive impact immigrants have on our country, economy, and communities. Learn more at www.iir.gmu.edu. Uh, Louise and I are talking with Jimena Varela, director of the arts management program at American University in Washington, D.C. Born in Uruguay, Jimena has lived in different parts of South America, the United States, and Europe. Uh, Jimena, you took your own path different from several artist siblings. You told us uh, you chose this path pretty early on. And I think there were some early hiccups in your arts management career. Is that right? Yes, there was actually a crime in my early arts management career. Uh, my father, I'm going to start with the, with the non-crime wave. So I, my father, when I was very, very young, and we were living in the town of La Paloma in Uruguay, uh, founded an oceanographic museum. So he had a lot of sextants and uh, other kinds of object nautical instruments, and he had a very extensive shell and fossil collection. And with the doctor of that village, it was a village at the time, they created this this museum. And I was fascinated to be there tagging along with him. I was three or four years old. And I created my own museum, uh, topless in a swimsuit in the driveway of our home on a big uh, slab of wood. I put little bits of rock and uh, little bits of brick, and I called it the Brick and Rock Museum. And it would welcome people. And there's a picture of me topless uh, being a docent in my early museum. So I've always loved non Profits and nonprofit museums. Now, my life of crime began shortly after that. I was five or six. Um, our house was directly opposite the church. And I gathered a few of my neighborhood friends. I made everyone wear a smock. And we I had them all artists. artists wear smocks, of yeah. course. And I knew this at age five or six. I was very clear on the dress code <laughs> for artists. Um, I had us all paint uh, these paintings. And we put them up with... Um, uh, clothespins on the fence of my home and as people filed into the church we, I told them that we were having a gallery this was an art gallery and we were having an art sale they could choose their artworks and then um, pay us and then when they came out of church they could pick up their artworks now the crime comes in because hardly anyone picked up their artworks <laughs> They gave us money, they chose art, and then they never came back to pick them up. So for years after this, I lived racked by guilt that I had uh, conned people into buying art and then never delivered these artworks. And I had had no way of getting it to them because I was six. I couldn't recognize their faces. I don't know, but I felt I had committed some kind of major art crime. So from that moment on, I veered more towards museums than art galleries because I felt, you know, my career had started on a very bad foot. In our yeah. Years later, it occurred to me that those people didn't want those artworks and they were just giving giving some money to some cute kids making pictures. But, yes, that was a, a rocky start in the in the commercial art world. I see. I've steered clear ever since as much yeah. as I can. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, what made you decide to organize rather than being the artist yourself? When did that start? I wanted very much to be the artist, but not enough. And I think to be an artist, you have to not just want to be the artist, but you have to be want to be willing to put in the work. Um, to be an artist. And I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't want to put in the work of being an artist. I wanted to be a genius. Uh, and I enjoyed all sorts of arts very much. My father, I'm the num I'm sixth of seven brothers and sisters. And my father very much encouraged us to have artistic careers. So that wasn't, it wasn't that we were fighting against parental disapproval. No, we, we were very su much supported. And most of my siblings are artists. Um, but I, I tried many things, but wasn't willing to put in the work of dance, of sculpture, of the, which were two of the things I loved most. However, I did find myself organizing everybody. Uh, and you could call that bossy. I called it, you know, precocious arts management. Um, because I was the one who would organize my younger brother's schedules and make sure that, you know, that he got to his rehearsals and that he had his lunch and that he knew where he had to go. And where the, and, and, I, and I was very much into organizing 
all the artists around me, like starting with my gallery, right? Quite a few. Right. So I, I love to work in groups and I love to work with groups and artists and I love to organize them. And I saw that as facilitating uh, the art getting to people and people being able to access the art. And that's been the driving passion of my life. I just didn't know that there was a career I could have in that. But that's what how I ended up in arts management. And I actually trained in a business school. Um, I trained in finance and in marketing and hated every minute of it until it occurred to me that I could put that training at the service of arts organizations and artists. Wow. So I've noticed when you say the South, you mean South America. You grew up moving around a lot, including three years as a child in Michigan in the 70s. So we want to hear more about that. Sure. So uh, we moved around a lot because my father was in exile uh, from the military regime in Uruguay. There was a coup in 72 or 73. I should know exactly, but I don't remember right now. Um, and my godfather, had, was, who was a senator in Uruguay, was murdered as part of Operation Condor in Argentina. And my father, who had been working with uh, in industrial psychology with unions for quite some time, and our house had been raided twice by the military, decided that it really was time for us to get out of there and, and go because he was in fear for his life. So... He uh, first went to British Columbia, um, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, as a visiting professor. He was older, so he was maybe 63 or 64 at that point. So, yeah, I was born when he was uh, 58 years old. So there wasn't really a question of him starting an academic career. If anything, he was at the tail end of an academic career. But he was very well known, um, both in North and South America, for his work in behavioral psychology around, uh, particularly in industry and unions. So... He had a series of uh, visiting professor appointments in different places, so we, which was terrific for me as a kid because I got to live for a while in Vancouver, and then we were in Hawaii, and then we were in Michigan, and then we were in Paris and Brussels for a little bit, then back in Michigan, then Dominican Republic. We also spent some time in, in New York where he uh, taught at Columbia University and in Brazil and Rio. So um, very peripatetic childhood, but I always felt um, I never saw it as a problem, uh, you know, like, oh, I don't not having roots or anything like oh, that. Okay. Um, right. The way we were raised was you could, ad- really, we were raised to adapt to anything. Uh, so to be, and wow. I think it made us very, uh, very resilient, very adaptable mm-hmm. to anything. Um, yeah, I think my parents did a good job of framing it as the next adventure and never making us feel like we were running from something. And we were talking about this earlier in the prep, how I didn't have a sense of danger of my family being in danger, except for a couple of you know, odd moments that I remember vividly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, it was more, okay, so we're going to be here in Paris for the next three months. All right, so, and then what happens? Oh, we're back to Michigan. Cool. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell all my friends about what we did. And yeah. then, uh, so the hard one was when we, fin- when we, uh, when the military regime left and the democracy was coming back to Uruguay that my parents decided to return. And that was hard, because, not because going back to Uruguay, which is fantastic, but because I knew that the, the years of traveling were over at least for oh, a long the time. The adventure was over, and that was very, very hard um, because I'd been trained to, like, yeah, we're going to be here for a year or two, and then we'll go to somewhere somewhere else. So that was very hard, the knowing that we were going to stay put for a very for a very long time. So, yes, when I say the South, I mean the true deep South, uh, which is South America and Uruguay, which you can't get much more South uh, than that. You yeah. know, we even have penguins in the winter. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's what I mean. So how old were you when you returned? I returned the day I turned 12. Okay. Which to, to Uruguay. To Uruguay. And since I was a tween, it was the most tragic day of my life. Oh. Uh, right? <laughs> because my adventures were over at age 12. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and now I was going to grow up as a regular child. Oh. Right? So, and no flashy jets. No flashy around. jets. And I, and I was, you know, in those days, this was 1982, 1981, actually. Um, uh, in those days, very few of my friends had ever been on a plane. Or very, oh, you know, this is yeah, what I, and I, I had yeah. my little Pan Am suitcase, and, oh, <laughs> and I had a collection of little Pan Am pens and toothbrushes and the eye patches, and <laughs> I knew stewardesses, and I there was one stewardess in particular with sorry now flight attendants uh, that we exchanged postcards with. I mean, I was the jet setter you of the were. sixth grade, yeah. And now that was all o- that was all over. It was that was much more shocking to me than the culture shock, and it took me a while to realize that it wasn't the culture shock so much that was hard to adapt to. 
as the life um, like life said, yeah, calming down <laughs> and staying put in one place. Like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> we have a house now. What? <laughs> so, how long was it before you were on an airplane again after that? Oh, very, very soon after. Because oh, from okay. that moment on, my my mission was to find ways to travel and find ways to do things. So, I, it took me about as a teenager, as a teen. So, it took me oh. four years. But in in, in in when I was sixteen, uh, we went with well with my my junior high school class um, to. Uh, the, the falls of Iguazu in Brazil, and I started pestering my parents to just take planes to places. <laughs> so I would travel around in Latin America a bit, uh, and then the minute I could, when I was nineteen, I started to travel much more again. Oh, um, and with my then husband traveling very mm. soon, I got married very soon after, and traveling everywhere, and and ended up here. Where, wow. yeah, was it traveling to discover art, or was it? Purely for pleasure or my travel. Well, it was the pens. She needed to restock the pen and pens. <laughs> I needed the pens and the eye patches, and then and then Pan Am went and folded. I felt a personal sense of loss when Pan Am folded. A personal fa- sense of loss in I mean, It sounds like your they family were they were personal. my family. Pan Am was my family, <laughs> and my final ticket for Pan Am I never got to use. Uh, it was in oh, 1991, no. or I think it was 1991 or 1990, maybe that December. I was I had bought a ticket to. I was living in the U.S. I had come to spend a year studying in the U.S. and I'd bought a Pan Am ticket to return home. And Pan Am folded over those holidays, and I felt betrayed <laughs> because yeah. I never got my ticket yeah. back. Then my my, uh, my my new relationship with United began at that point, oh. and now oh. it's ended again. Anyway, yeah, we won't get we won't get started on that. On that. Yeah. <laughs> So um, to answer your question, Louise, about the, the travel, actually, it's, it, it really was about traveling for art um, and seeing things, uh, seeing exhibits in particular. Museums are my passion. We've established that my life of crime led me to museums. <laughs> um, but uh, it, because when we were growing up in all of these places, my father, as, I, as I've said, made a point of taking us to the museums in that, in that city. And knowing them very well, and he was very much into science. My mother was very much into art. They both, you know, enjoyed um, the other kind of museums. But I got used to not going to a museum as a one-time thing. So when we were in Paris, I didn't go. We didn't go to the Louvre once. We went to the Louvre as a matter of course. And you know, one day we'd go to see a certain part of it, and another day, to, and then we'd come back to see a particular statue. So I love the Victoria of Samothrace, and I love the the, the Greek uh, halls in Louvre. So, and going back and drawing and having sort of a dialogue. about the things there and talking about them so for me museums were of course they're the place you go to and and it took me a long while to understand that that was not (laughs) how people saw museums that museums Mm -hmm. were a special occasion special event that you might visit once and I was like what that's so alien to 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 our the way we were raised so it's like for you it was like going to the park or something right and to this day you know now i have kids as younger kids so it's harder for me to travel as much but i i'll be you know driving and listening to npr because i'm that kind of person right <laughs> and i just heard of an exhibit in california that i really want to go to like my desire to travel to places is because i hear oh. about exhibits that they're having and i'm like oh. i want to see that one right that's passionate that's so it's so it's really about the exhibit or the concert that i could see and it's it's not about um, necessarily about the place. The place to me means the cultural institutions that are. Well, in that that's place. it's a bonus. Yeah, bonus. yeah, that it's a bonus, and I'll get to eat great, the great food, and I'll yeah. get to see the sights. <laughs> but but I, even when I travel for conferences, and I know I'm going to have an afternoon off. I don't know what people look for, but I look for the museums and the exhibits that are going on. Oh, yeah. Because that's what sure. I need to go see, you know. And I understand that some people might look at other things, but um, but or look for. You know, other people might look for a jazz club or or a place where they can mm-hmm. go get drinks. That's shopping, shopping, right? <laughs> um, and that was not. Uh, that's not how we were raised. No, we never had any money to go shopping. I think that was also very smart. Yeah. You know, my father was an older gentleman. He was close to retirement age. He was a visiting professor. My mother was not working. She later on became a photographer in life when we went back to Uruguay, but she wasn't oh. working. Um, so I don't. We never had very much money to do much, but you could go to these museums and always find more more things. You came back to the USA on a scholarship, got a master's in arts management from Drexel University. When you moved to DC in 2011, uh, you had been a tenured professor at Drexel. You're teaching now at AU and supporting artists, both American-born and born-abroad artists. Uh, what's your experience in this job? Um, 
I love where I teach. I love where I work. Um, AU is a really great school to be an arts manager in because one of its international focus. So it has a very strong school of international service, uh, which is ranked five, I think, in the world. So uh, it's a place where uh, different cultures and interaction with different cultures is very much a part of what the university is about. It has a terrific university museum. I'm doing all the plugs for my school, but I just, I'm very proud to work with there, and I think it's a great place Jack, to be. Well, thank you. Yes, hi, Jack. Uh, Jack Rasmussen is the director of the uh, American University Museum, and he's also an alum of the program that I currently direct. So I can't oh, take cool. any credit for him, but I oh. made him what he is. No, not really. Uh, he graduated a little bit long before I came on board. Although he's a very young man, um, but <laughs> but he's done a terrific job in the museum. The university museum at American University has really done an excellent job of being a space that other museums in the city can't, which is being a place where you can have pro- progressive and and uh, provoca- provocative political dialogue, and also bringing in international artists who have uh, things to say about the state of the world, uh, and about issues in in the world in a way that perhaps the federally funded museums can't do. Uh, the private art gallery have other priorities, right? And there's not that much space in D.C. where this can happen. So the AU Museum does a ter- terrific job of, of being a place where you can have that kind of dialogue and that kind of exposure to international artists. And now has layered onto that also the local uh, artist uh, networks with the Alper Initiative, which is a place where local artists can also exhibit and show and network their, oh. their work too. Yeah, so, it's, so for me, AU is a very good place to be as an arts manager with my interest because it pivots between the international scene and issues that are affecting all of us globally, but it also speaks to issues uh, that affect us locally and and then the connections between those two. Mm -hmm. So the question was about the supports of artists and the the work with the artists. Yeah, it's, I mean, what is your experience? Why do they come here? Um, Do you reach out for them to come here? So I don't work with artists Uh, directly as artists. I work with artists who are arts managers by vocation, right? So, uh, but I do have uh, friends and connections who are artists who come from other places. So just to give you the framework of of where I operate. Mm -hmm. The students who come to my program, for the most part, are practicing artists. Okay. uh, Who are uh, what I used to be, which is the person who organizes all the artists around them, right? And when you are, among your friends, the artist that is organizing everybody else, keeping tabs on the schedules and making sure everyone has the right things to eat and housing and all that. You're the arts manager in that group. Don't kid yourself. You're an artist too, but you're the arts manager, right? So so my students are of that that bent. And they come from around the country and around the world. We've tried very hard to have a class of a, a cohort of students that's about a third um, or between a quarter and a third are international students from, from, from all over the place. So from certainly from Europe, but also from, we've had students from Australia, from Lebanon. Now we have a gentleman coming in on a full work from Haiti. We've had uh, Trinidad oh. and Tobago, St. Vincent Grenadines from all over the place, cool. right? Very cool. Very cool for, for us uh, and for the American students oh. too to yes. have these students in their classroom, right? right. Because um, you can learn so much by the w- uh, about the way people are making art happen in other parts of the world and applying that or seeing how you can apply it to the States. So um, so these people who come are, and the other thing, are, are all artists in their own right. So we've had dancers, uh, people from visual arts, uh, sorry, certainly from China as well, right? That's a major uh, source of students for, for all of us, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a d- very diverse student body, um, both uh, racial racially, ethnically diverse uh, in terms of gender identity. It's diverse as well. Um, so it's a very rich environment in which to experience each other. And very often in the arts, we tend to, I hate the word silo, but we tend to um, be very familiar with a particular discipline or a particular um, space or kind of space. So the opera students and the opera singers tend to stick with the opera singers, right. the visual artists with the visual artists. And we curate our classes very intentionally and very carefully to have a mix of visual artists, dancers, theater people, um, all in the same, musicians, all in the same room. Um, so just think about what that mix is, right, in, in, yeah. of, in terms of disciplines and national origins and racial and gender identity. Um, I believe that makes for a much stronger arts manager and a much and, and, and arts managers what we do is support the work of artists so the more exposure and openness you can have as an arts manager the better you're going to be at helping the work of artists I, yeah so. 
So it sounds like you really enjoy having that very diverse classroom, but how do you see arts in society overall? Do you see that the immigrant art is contributing a lot to the American art world and society in general? Uh, the immigrant artists are what has made <laughs> the American art world, right? So, so of course there are many uh, people, artists born here in the United States who, are, who have done and are doing um, the work of creating an art, uh, an American artistic identity. But if you think about the architecture in our cities, you think about the design of our cities, you think about uh, the artists who have influenced our American artists here, the musicians who have come, the conductors of the orchestras, the fourth oboes. Right? So, um, these, you know, if you look at, at, at the population of any of our orchestras or any of our theaters or our dance troops, they are some of the most internationally diverse groups that you find in any industry, right? And they so, always have been. and they always have been. So this is not new. This is this is how the Amer American arts have been um, uh, created and portrayed. So of course we have locally local homegrown arts as well. So for example jazz is the most frequent example but it's also probably one of the most important to cite because it was used during the Cold War by the United States to be be a symbol of American versatility and creativity and homegrown art as well. Uh, there's the film industry as well which has impacted um, all of these art forms have impacted you know artists worldwide but then they come back to the United States and feed into and inspire artists here as well. So To me, the American artistic experience is completely inseparable from the immigrant artistic experience and immigrant artistic contributions. You yeah. just can't set them apart. And one of the things that I that I worry about is, and that I've begun to see, is that that uh, with you know some of the immigration challenges that we've been been having, yeah. at least in the circle of artists, uh, friends that I interact with, uh, a certain I don't want to say fear, but apprehension about how welcome artists from around the world would be to do their work here and. Okay. Uh, that affects me, of course, on a personal level, but I think on a bigger macro level, looking at the arts in the United States, how will uh, reluctance by artists from around the world to come to the U.S. affect then the, the, the further development of artistic expression in the United States, which has relied so heavily on precisely that kind of exchange and acceptance? Sure, yeah. That's a trend that... Um We will have to hope uh, kind of uh, changes, I Dissipates. guess. Dissipates, yeah. yeah might <laughs> well, be and I, I think I would also add just to ha to make sure the the American-born artists are always in, are in the conversation too. But I think they want they want the artists from abroad here too. It's, yeah, it's definitely. not that there's. I mean, it's they they need that uh, extra air and, and inspiration too. Yeah, it's it's the, the the American artists actually are probably some of the exhibit some of the greatest solidarity uh, with artists from overseas of any other people in in the society. They mm -hmm. understand uh, first of all because they understand how fragile the existence of an artist can be, and yeah, how how true. necessary yeah. the support systems are. Um, and how 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 much solidarity again is needed in these support networks? So there's no way that our dance companies, our orchestras, our, our museums could have could, could have uh, existed in the way they did if it weren't for all these supports. It's not because you make a ton of money doing this kind of work, right? So so it's been possible to develop this kind of this work because artists support each other and provide a haven for each other. So um, I think American artists deserve tremendous respect for the generosity that they exhibit in, in, in welcoming artists from other places and making sure that they have spaces to, to participate. I see it on a, on, on, you know, in my own small part of the world with my students, how easy it is to, for them to connect to artists in their disciplines, how welcomed they are um, in, 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 in ways that normally a, just a visitor from overseas might not find ways to plug into to places. Wow. So really, when people arrive in the U.S., they should be connected to the to the artists, the service and services, <laughs> and to the artists. And to the art, the artists. The artists are amazingly generous, and and with and they have very little for the most part. They live very have very little, often live very precariously. But their their generosity is boundless, and their support for other artists is, is really boundless and really impressive. So the artists get it. The, the problem isn't the American artists. Uh -huh. The problem is the system um, around the support for immigrant artists, uh, for immigrants, period, mm -hmm. which affects all immigrants, mm -hmm. but artists who are a particularly vulnerable population in many ways, even more. 
Yeah, so they know, they the artists, the community knows about that vulnerable lifestyle. Exactly. Whether you're an artist or not, when you arrive as an immigrant, you, you're in that vulnerable situation. You put it much better than I did. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly no, it. I mean, just, that's exactly yeah, it. That's, that's exactly it. And so if you lay onto that uncertainty as an immigrant, you know, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not surprised that many artists who are not from here and who are here on visas or are thinking, you know, is this a place where I can I really take these kinds of risks? Yeah, uh, right. To yeah. to to maybe yeah. paint the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or uh, when I already have all this other you know right thing. or even if there's even if there is not necessarily any risk, is the apprehension going to squelch my my creativity? Yeah, exactly. At the end, at the end. and is there a so. place where I could do that uh, better? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining Louise and me, Jimena. Uh, the work you do supporting artists and, and teaching future arts managers is even more important today than ever. Um, society deserves the arts and artists deserve the support of societies, whether it's public or private. Thank you so much. Thank you both. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to have you today in the studio. Thank you. Hi, this is James Witte, Director of the Institute for Immigration Research at George Mason University. At the IIR, we believe that conversations on immigration should be based on factual and unbiased evidence resulting in a productive understanding of our communities. If you believe accurate information is important to educating the public, please like us on iTunes or leave us a comment. This truly helps others to learn about us. Please also consider supporting us by going to the Give button at iir.gmu.edu. Thanks for choosing to be a part of this important conversation on immigrants and immigration. Having caught up with Jimena Varela, who lived into the art world at a young age, New Gray, we are now talking with Matt Tony, actor and theater director in Washington, D.C., who really did leap into dance and theater at a young age in Ireland. And then, and and because it, it was well, I mean, the Northern Ireland is is not sort of famous for 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 being able to communicate. You know, it's quite a buttoned up culture, mm-hmm. and like a very masculine culture, and, and you know, very intense. And you got to kind of watch what you say. And in the the dance world, particularly the community dance world, and young people, you know, you just kind of turned up and and moved. And I mean, having an outlet of a different type of expression was amazing. Um, it was less the ballet that really got me into it than this uh, hip hop dance class or what was called urban dance at the time. And I remember that teacher very vividly it was a, it was a, a, a black guy from London called Sylvan Baker. And in the 90s in Belfast, a black guy from London was was really sort of like uh, exotic. It was like a different, like totally different type of world just carry sort of in, in this one person and we we sort of ended up doing festivals and touring shows and um you know so it was quite it was a very transformation experience as a teenager. for me as a teenager yeah yeah, yeah and I, I got really into it and I, I ended up like uh um having a couple of experiences that i didn't at the time that i didn't appreciate like one was uh, the very uh, uh merce cunningham was a famous dancer from new york yeah. brought a show to belfast and his dancers worked with a group of community dancers and young people to make a companion piece that, that performed at the waterfront hall in belfast i had no idea who this this old guy was <laughs> wow. didn't know as part of you know connecting to to the the history of um you know, american theater and culture and then i also w- w- uh, danced with uh, the national ballet um as like an extra in their touring production of swan lake And then I was part of a Belgian dance company um, with these two crazy Belgian dancers called Philippe and Sasha, who were based in Northern Ireland and used to make pieces. So um, before I kind of got into acting or theatre, I kind of was involved with some kind of very, very, very serious artists. Yeah. Um, And that had a huge impact on me because it wasn't just about come and enjoy this experience. It was come and take part in this piece mm-hmm. we're making a piece and and mm-hmm. and that has some thought behind it and some rigor behind it and 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 really like at the time like i say i didn't appreciate it but in my work now i kind of often think back to that teenage boy in those rooms and which is what that kind of opened up for me so, so it sounds like you met a lot of role models in those years, or you might not have been aware that they were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, but I think I think like 
this is the great one of the great things about about theatre or the performing arts or culture in general is it's a language it's a form of communication a form of connection yeah. um, and the fact that it was dance that was my way into it you know that it was like a non-verbal non-literal like, like the meaning of it was something that was very personal mm-hmm. and very communal and, and there was never any discussion of any intellectual ideas of what it was about and what it meant you just got together and you made it mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the thing that I kind of keep is you know that there was like an instinct following an instinct uh, being inspired by others and their instincts and you you connect and and regardless of what i've done since that feeling is kind of what i try and recreate mm-hmm. or that's the bedrock from right. which i think creativity yeah generates you know yeah. that that impulse that kind is it of like a gut feeling yeah. you get when things feel right yeah yeah and so i i just i'm fascinated by this so your your mother must have been very perceptive did, was she was she dragging you to this class because she thought that you would like it or because she had some master plan? Well, I think there's a several several answers to that question. Um, a, a big part of it, according to her, was that uh, I was very mal coordinated and clumsy, <laughs> um, and uh, um, so I, I actually went to sort of two classes simultaneously. One was ballet, and the other was kickboxing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, so, and and you, they they were and and the way she kind of got me into the ballet is one of my idols at the time was this guy Jean Claude Van Damme, this famous oh, yes. martial artist, yes. and and he did ballet. So oh. she was like, "It'll help you with your kicks." <laughs> this is a <laughs> wise you, woman you know? here. Um, but uh, but she also um, like like we we are kind of kindred souls, and that 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 she might have gone into the theater in a different life. And uh, was definitely heavily involved in, in in amateur dramatics, and and is a writer and a very kind of creative and artistic spirit. Um, and I think she knew that I needed something more than was available to me in Northern Ireland at the time. Like I say, you know, it was, it was in the middle of the Troubles. There was a lot of kind of violence and uh, and silence and like intensely held beliefs that were, you know held close to the chest and then expressed mm-hmm. in the streets and yeah. and that that kind of you know I was a very sensitive child so I think I had a hard time processing all that and in my youth theatre group you know my kickboxing and the, and the dance um, give outlets you know for those kind of difficult teenage years what yeah. what years are we talking just to put things a little in perspective so um, yeah uh, I actually I lived in Belgium from ages 9 to 12 because my, my stepfather was a civil servant and I returned to Northern Ireland when I was 12 and it was a culture shock and that's what led to the sort of the, the dance classes and the performing arts and the fighting. Okay. And um, from 12 to 18, I was like heavily involved and got to the point when I was 15, 16, 17 that I was doing some kind of class rehearsal or performance every night a week, seven days. Wow. And is this in the 90s or when? Yeah, yeah in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, so I left. Uh, I left Belfast in 99 and moved to Dublin. Okay. Yeah, so I so I was a child in Belfast in the 80s and then a teenager in Belfast in the 90s. Did you move to Dublin because of your artistic uh, pursuits? Or? Yes. Well, yeah. I got into. I, I applied to uh, a number of universities um, to to study uh, drama with English literature. Um, because theatre on its own wasn't enough for me. I was very intellectually curious, and and um, Trinity had one of the best Trinity College in Dublin, had one of the best programs around, and um, I got into and 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 I also uh, was rejected from Oxford, <laughs> which, had, which, had like, which I think had a profound effect on my development. You know, um, um, but then you know, in my Oxford interview, they were like, uh, "Oh no, you need to study drama." <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, you could do the literature thing, but that's not your passion. You've just spoken about theater and Beckett and theater companies for the last 45 minutes. So, ah. so I think they were doing me a great favor. Yeah. Because um, at, at that time in Ireland, there was like a number of amazing theater companies. It was a very passionate scene, and Trinity College just is, is like like a, a, a breeding ground for Irish artistic directors and so not even just the drama program, but the the, the student theater society. And people were doing like experimental plays and writing new plays and bringing in touring works and and it was it was a really Very exciting nice. it was a really exciting time. But I I honestly uh, was dead set against staying in Northern Ireland 
um, you know, it was, it was a very violent time and, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted out, you know, there was something in me that just wanted uh, a broader experience, wanted something more. And, and I got that, you know, in Dublin. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember even when I was in Dublin, like I remember going, going back to Belfast and I remember the first place you could get a cappuccino. <laughs> because you used to just get milky coffee or black coffee that was all you got because yes, right. it, it was a very kind of like like insular clo- and then suddenly it was all ca- coffee shops cappuccinos crazy haircuts because um, this new generation as the troubles died down people wanted to express themselves they wanted to, to join the international world and then you got this sort of weird gap between poor communities in Northern Ireland who, who are still attached to the old ways and then like aggressively upward, upwardly mobile young middle class people and couples and um, that weird uh, or, or, or complicated um, relationship between the old and the new um, meant that it was a very exciting place to be. Right, yeah. Because you know, there's a lot of generative energy, a lot of kind of new art and stuff happening and cultural institutions growing. Um, but so it was the, but it was it was sort of my own past and my own experience that I wanted to escape rather than than the place, you know, because because Belfast is famous for having some of like the best people in the world, the most real, the most authentic, the best sense of humor that do anything for you, and and that's certainly what I feel every time I go home. Did you leave a family behind, and how did you how do you feel about oh, that? Oh boy, yeah, and, the, I, I honestly, family, I think is is the the hardest thing to leave. Um, and I go back as much as I can, and you know, and, and they come and visit me. And certainly with WhatsApp and Skype and everything, it's easier to keep in touch. But um, for years, you know, I'd only see my family like two, three times a year, and that has been the single hardest thing because you know my my parents aren't getting any younger, and I'm thousands yeah. of miles away, and um, you know the urge to go home, the, the kind of the guilt. It's it's quite it can be it can be quite intense. Um, but they certainly champion me and celebrate me being over here doing something that I couldn't do at home right. um, because the the theatre culture in America uh, is so different to anything that's available in Belfast. Mm. You know, but um, I'm getting to the place now where where um, I would I would be if an opportunity opened up at home, I would certainly consider it very, very, very strongly. Um, but I think that kind of complicated dance between what is home and and, and and our own personal journeys would be something that, that every immigrant would identify with. Because you leave people behind and you leave a life behind in order to open up other opportunities. And then you bring those lessons home or you bring those experiences home. Um, and uh, the days of kind of even like standing with a, 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 co- a phone card, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, minute you yes. buy, you pay your money for your minutes and you yeah, type in your, into the pay phone, phone to, to talk, to talk to your ma, you know, <laughs> now, now it's like, she sends me photos of, you know, of what's going on and yeah. Viber texts. Yeah. You know. Yeah. How, how many years has it been for you in the States now? Um, since 2006. So 11 years in August. Wow. Yeah. And you, so is it still the same kind of feeling or do you feel like you're more American, if you can say? Uh, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, unequivocally, I, I am I am not American. Um, but my, I think my sense of a... That, that was a complicated word um, because the Americanness that, that, that a lot of people talk about um, never existed. It's a fantasy. You know, this sort of magical land of the 50s where everything was great. You know, that like that that just didn't exist. This is a country of immigrants. First and foremost, this is a country where people arrived in their hundreds of thousands from other places with other accents and other languages. Like up until the 1930s, like German was was more a more popular language in the Midwest than English. Yeah. And, and this is all very conveniently forgotten and swept under the rug. And, and, you know, I don't, hopefully I don't offend anybody with this, but, but I connect very strongly to, to this idea of America as a place where immigrants, where people from other places came to make a new life, right. to, to forge a new thing. And, and it was this sort of incredible social experiment where kind of radical ideas from, from the rest of the world were f- like synthesized into this amazing society that was based on openness and freedom and, um, and I, I mean, I think we are shaped by the by the places that that we are. But there will always be—I will always be an outsider. 
you know. You and will feel like an outsider? On some yeah. well, I mean, on a daily basis, you know, people, you know, they'll do Irish accents to me or <laughs> or want to talk. Still. Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> less so. I mean, I suppose DC is quite an international community, you know, so certainly less so. But the, the Irish jokes are, are never far away. Even if I kind of like uh, uh, went and got my citizenship tomorrow, um, I don't think anything would substantially change about the way people would want to talk to me about Ireland or or, or talk to me about their family, um, talk to me about their ancestors or where in Ireland they're from or vacations to Ireland. And I love that. I don't, I don't resent that. I mean, I, I roll my eyes a little bit when, when people want to do Irish accents and talk about kind of, you know, whiskey and stuff like that. You know, I <laughs> just 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 cuz it's kind of kind of boring, not because it's ill-intentioned, you know. Uh, and that's also not what Ireland is in right. any in any way shape or yeah. form. Well, what I can say is that I that that I f- I feel far away from home. Uh, and I also feel very much at home. You know, with, with with my life here and my 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 community at Studio Theatre and my relationship, and my group of friends, um, and and who's to say if I went home it wouldn't be like stifling and strange and awful, or if I stayed here it wouldn't be lonely. You just you just don't know, and and I think that I could see you know the path branching in either direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think anything's going to happen. Imminently, <laughs> I'm not like months away from a big momentous life decision. But but it's more when I think when you when you you know like jump on the plane. No, yeah, yeah. no, don't I'll do it. Go it. <laughs> also, there's this crazy thing. You know, when I when I was in in, in Ireland um, working like as a, as a freelance director, there was this big thing where the Celtic Tiger, which was this Irish economic boom, was roaring. And 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 in the 90s and 80s and 90s, there'd been no work, so all the young people left. And then they all came back to have families. And then they had kids. And then there was a recession and all the kids left. So so I think this this thing, you know, like this, the diaphragm of, of, yeah. of, of immigration, emigration and return um, is, is, is part of the story of, of Ireland. And it is part of the identity. Tell us a little bit about how the famous director Anne Bogart inspired your work. There's a, a, a company called The Lear, uh, which is associated with Trinity and Rada, um, and that is sort of one of the great uh, like drama schools now. But at the time, it didn't exist, so you had to go to London or Berlin. Um, and I read this book by Anne Bogart called A Director Prepares. Um, which is a play. There's a famous uh, book by by an uh, acting book called "An Actor Prepares." Oh. So it's kind of like a play on that, and and it was very much about how being a director was being an artist. She kind of broke it down into these 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 uh, responses to certain ideas, you know, like 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 work that stops you in your tracks, arrest or stereotype, or um, and she would look at what the craft of directing has to do with the past, what the craft of directing has to do with with modern art, what the craft of directing has to do with dance. What and and it became it showed me that directing could be a point of view, that you could be involved in the culture and synthesize many things through yourself and your own experience into something if you had the tools. And and it was just a mind blowing book. And at the back, uh, it was had her bio and it said she ran a, a course in New York at Columbia University. And I just read that and thought, oh, that's it. That's what I need to do. Um, so I compiled together several scholarships from the Irish Arts Council. There was this thing, the Bank of Ireland Millennium Scholarship Fund that, that I got I got a scholarship from. And then I got a Dean's Fellowship from, from Columbia that made it possible for me to go. Um, and and I, I remember, like... This the surreal feeling of hopping on the plane because all my focus had been on raising this money and getting there. That suddenly I was sitting in in in, in an apartment in Harlem, <laughs> thinking, "What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? What's going on?" <laughs> and on the first day of classes, being like, "Oh, I never actually prepared for what this was going to mean um, to leave everything behind and start something new." And um, and is without question the most incredible teacher that I had in my life because she gets the gut of it and she's also incredibly smart and she's an amazing writer and uh, a lot of her work is very avant-garde 
but she understands all the rest of it. She she understands the tools. Mm-hmm. And um, the way the course worked was you would direct two original pieces every week. You had to figure out, it was, it was about, you know, about two kind of, you know, 10 to 20 minute original pieces of theatre with as much design wow. as you could make. One for Anne Bogart's class, which was looking on the avant-garde and deconstructing the nature of, of directing an art and was making work in response to his prompts. And the other for like a classical directing class. Um, and by classical, I don't mean like old. I mean the, the American system of um, intentions, actions, objectives, beats, all the kind of things that any 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 student of of, uh, of um, Stella Adler or American realism would understand these kind of building blocks about how to understand the acting process, which is based on you know Russian Stanislavski. This kind of it's like old and codified and <laughs> the American method, and and it's a very specific language mm-hmm. that has to be articulated in a very specific way. So you'd sort of one class. Uh, engaging with the, the the technique, the craft, and another engaging with the why, the art, and mm-hmm. and it was just mind blowingly amazing and difficult, you know, because you do your full load of classes, rehearse in the evenings, find time because you know you had to write essays and papers and and there was nothing like it. So was this a master's program? Yeah, it was a master of fine arts. Master of fine arts. Okay. So master of fine arts, and, and that kind of like intense crucible of of learning, where you're being challenged intellectually, emotionally, and also you know, spiritually uh, at the same time. You know, the why, like, what is it? What is theatre? What is art? Why do it at all? Um, just was just the most like mind opening soul opening experience of my life up to that did and it was exactly what I wanted and at the time though it nearly killed me like it just changed the way that I approach art and life wow so did you work with the theater department at Columbia to get actors and actresses to perform your shows or plays well so here's the thing it was one of those great uh, field of dreams mentalities (laughs) you know that next week you have to do uh, 20 pages of, of Antigone and you just have to find actors and find rehearsal space and have an idea and make it happen. And this, I think, was 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 the, was the toughest thing in that you weren't guaranteed actors. You just had to find them. So I like every break I was on the phone trying to talk like because if you work with rubbish actors, you can't do any any work. If you work with young actors or green actors, it's a very different process. So you're you're trying to talk like excellent actors into coming up and doing your doing your piece and and it, it kind of teaches you uh, an efficient communication um, how to handle immense stress and also how to kind of be really conscious of the value of what you're offering because if you have any apology they're not going to do it you just have to be like I'm doing 20 pages of Antigone this next week this is my idea I want you to do it this is why and that's 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 something uh, that I mean uh, that skill, regardless of anything artistic, has been immeasurably useful to me in my in my career. Yeah, tell it tell us about oranges, and that's some that's work that you are still doing, or you were doing while you were in New York City. So um, for two years, I was the director of programming for Origin Theatre Company in New York. Um, and Origin is it's a pretty amazing, pretty amazing operation. It's led by by one of my dear friends, George Heslin, who's uh, uh, an actor and director, artistic director, producer. He's just an extraordinary human being. Mm-hmm. Um, he's from Limerick. And, and he had this sort of passionate idea uh, about 14 years ago to found a, an, in what he calls an intercultural theatre company, uh, a theatre company based in New York that does European plays. So uh, in the first couple of years, he was doing a lot of plays from from Ireland. You know, he was the first person to bring Enda Walsh to to America, um, who's a, a really amazing playwright who went on to do once on Broadway and um, you know, lots lots of quite exciting things, um, and uh, was committed to doing uh, plays and translations. So we, we've done uh, all the British Isles are covered: England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland, also. Uh, Sweden, Romania, <laughs> Germany, like, like, like the 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 commitment to uh, 
um, this idea that telling stories from other places and working with artists from other places, primarily playwrights. So there's some insane number like Origin has premiered the work of like 160 playwrights in America Mm -hmm. through readings, through commissions, through through doing all the all these sort of amazing things. So to work at Origin meant uh, interacting with uh, international people, international artists all the time. So we were working with embassies to build programs. There was a play reading series that would focus on different regions. Um, we worked with the Lincoln Center uh, Library to do this amazing Balkan symposium where we did plays from the Balkans and, and had had uh, artists talking about their experiences there. And, uh, and there was an element of artists who are immigrants mm-hmm. from the Balkans making work in America, what that means. So... Um, it was an amazing uh, experience, you know. When I was there, we, I, I was sort of brought on board to to uh, help the company grow and deepen some of these these relationships artistically. And it was an amazing partnership because it was a small, agile company. So it was me, George, and 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 a, and a couple of other full time people, and we just really were getting our hands dirty with every aspect of, of of the company. And and I made some incredible friendships and incredible relationships. And what George taught me um, was the value of community because each of these plays that we were putting on had its own specific community and we were bringing those people to the theatre and bringing those people into um, into into our culture and, and, and living that, that cultural exchange. And uh, whenever I left to move to, to D.C. to work at Studio Theatre, um, he, he hired a, a Dutch director called Erwin Maas mm-hmm. to replace me. Uh, so it, it became even more uh, intercultural, right. you know, the culture of the office. And, and I, I think that um, there's going to be some great years ahead for that company because cause this is, a, I think, a time in America where, where intercultural exchange is very important. Um, What's wonderful about working at, at studio is the like dynamic breadth of the programming. Uh, the mission is to do the best of contemporary theatre, and, and how that's articulated is by doing um, not just the best of, of American theatre, but looking abroad. Mm-hmm. So we're always reading plays from, from Germany, Spain, France, Australia, Canada, South America. And we're looking for the best plays that are being written at the moment to kind of bring and do, do these sort of amazing productions in D.C. Um, at the moment, there's a French play, uh, The Father by Florian Zeller, uh, which is just an incredible look at, um, uh, at, at Alzheimer's, dementia, what happens when the mind begins to unravel. Mm-hmm. And formally, it's exciting. The writing's exciting. We've got an amazing cast. So, so I feel that at studio, I'm able to... to um, stay engaged with some of those communities and networks that I kind of formed at Origin and uh, bring some of that work to, to the DC stage. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us out here in Virginia. Um, <laughs> thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. We have been speaking with Matt Turney, theater director from Ireland, who is associate artistic director at Studio Theater in Washington, D.C., We are so grateful to both of our guests, Matt Turney and Jimena Varela from American University for joining us in the WGMU studios in Fairfax, Virginia. We want to thank our editor, Abe Cardi, for his enormous support. We could have never done this podcast without your insights and creativity. Thank you so much, Abe. Hear more episodes and read more about these artists at www.iir.gmu.edu. I am Anna Danielson. And I'm Louise Puck. Thank you for listening to Making a Mark, Making Places.